book club podcast we are in episode 25 of our penguin little black classics review series this is where we focus every week on a different penguin little black classics from they their collection which includes 80 works we are on 25 it is just travis again this week there were hints there were threats the good kind i guess if there are good kinds of threats that ryan would return this week but he is still on paternal duty well as he will be for the you know rest of his life though this is early stage paternal duty and so he couldn't make it for this episode so i'll be soloing it again we hope to have him back very soon um, but i've been enjoying doing the podcast alone it's challenged me i think hopefully if you've been listening you've been enjoying the variety of formats and the sort of experimental nature of what's been going on here lately. That experimental streak will continue this week. I figured that as long as I have to do the solo episodes, I may as well keep playing with the format. You know, I did a scripted episode a few pods ago. Last week, did an even different format than that that went on for 30 minutes or something like that. It was a, it was a long solo episode. This week might be long too, but I'm trying a different format. So what we've got on the docket this week is what... Penguin has labeled Circles of Hell. It's actually just a selection and excerpts from Inferno, which is a work by Dante, who's an incredibly famous, at least in Western literature, an incredibly famous Italian poet from the, I believe, 14th century, 1300s, right around there. And they have excerpted some of the cantos or some of the sections from his Inferno epic poem, uh, which is actually a part of another larger epic poem, which I don't know the name of, but it's basically this character goes through hell, and then they go through purgatory, and then they arrive in paradise. I know the last edition of this in Italian is Paradiso. Most people, at least most people like me who went through college, have a degree in literature, those kinds of people, um, probably encountered this at some point as to a normal person who didn't spend their time reading a lot of literature in college. Um, Maybe you've encountered Inferno, maybe not. It is, as I've mentioned, incredibly famous. Um, And I think I'm going to follow, I'm going to take the lead from Dante on this one, and I've decided to format the podcast sort of mimicking the structure of the story that we're going to be covering. So what does that mean exactly? I hope you're wondering. That means that I have come up with nine different levels, just as in Inferno there are nine levels of hell with increasing punishment and depravity and all kinds of uh, torture. Uh, I've come up with nine different levels of thought and questioning that I'm going to talk through and just discuss about this book and the excerpt they selected. I'm hoping, though, this plan might not be perfect, but I'm hoping that I, too, as I go through the different levels and get deeper and deeper, will increase the complexity. So my first couple of levels should be, you know, quick, simple thoughts about what to expect if, you know, you're a reader who wants to approach Inferno and read some Dante in 2019. And then hopefully as I get to the deeper levels, it becomes a bit more uh, analytical, I guess, or intricate or something. That's the hope anyway. So I'm going to do nine layers. Thanks, Dante, for the hint in terms of structure, and thanks for the assist there. And let's just get into it. Let's start with layer one. Enter all ye who would with me to my review of Inferno or Circles of Hell. So layer one is all about challenge and significance. Both are the keywords you should know if you want to pick up Inferno in 2019. 
it's an incredibly challenging work and definitely a masterwork of literature. I think you just have to know going in that this is a kind of cano- like canonical or canonized text for the Western canon, if, if you believe that's a thing that could or should exist. It's definitely defined art and literature in a way that is profound. It's not something that would be like a backwater text or some, you know, missed classic or something like that. This one it has, you know, probably infinite scholarship done on it. I'm assuming if you have an academic database at your disposal, you could just quickly search for it. And who knows how many literary articles and books have been dedicated to analyzing this text. It really is kind of a pillar text. And as I had mentioned, it, it does bring with it some challenge. Um, the very one of the opening lines once the narrator and the other character get to hell is there's a sign above the gates and in this version it's translated as saying through me you go to the grief wracked city through me to everlasting pain you go and i endure eternally surrender as you enter every hope you have which that translation is different than the ones I've read before, but the, the gist is the same. The sentiment is the same. You need to be prepared, and I think that kind of metatextually serves as a good warning to the reader. It's not something you're going to breeze through. It's, I guess, what we would call a bad beach read, though I, I always debate what that term should even mean. Um, it's dense, and it's potent, and I don't think it's as scary as that those lines lead a, would lead us to believe, but it's really not a bad metaphor for what's going on here. As a quick side note, it was remarkable, the Wikipedia page for the Inferno and for Dante. It's incredible how many shows, TV, movies, books, just all kinds of media and art reference this this work, the Inferno. There's Dan Brown, there's T.S. Eliot, there's Borges, there's artists, like classical artists like Dolly. Uh, there were TV shows like How I Met Your Mother and Arrow listed on there. There was a, an actual video game in 2010 called Dante's Inferno, like an action adventure game made about this, which I actually played and thought was okay. Um, but yeah, it's just, it really has suffused into the culture. So you should just know going in, that's you're kind of what you're getting yourself into. Layer two. Uh, second layer here in this review, you should get an annotated copy. The Penguin version that they have in this collection is not annotated, which is a critical mistake for any reader in 2019, unless you are a literal classic, classics academic or something, or you've studied the history of Italian literature or something specialized it would just be so pointless not to get an annotated version. It really pays off. There are references flying left and right in this work. They meet a lot of, they being the two main characters in the story, meet a lot of people on the roads of hell and in the setting of hell. In one page, I found references to Semiramis, Ninus, Cleopatra, Helen, Achilles, Paris, and Tristan. Only, of, I think, half of those I would have known off of hand. Um, so that hopefully reinforces the point. This is like literature with a capital L, which, you know, people use to mean it's trying to become part of a, a canon. It's trying to become part of like a, a legacy of, of literature and thought. And so it's just, you just have to be ready to like check for annotations and be like, ah, who's that again? or what's the significance of that point probably and I think it'll pay off there's a lot of there are a lot of moments in the story that really only get a deeper level of meaning just beyond fancy description if you know the person that he's critiquing or that he's kind of describing one of my favorite descriptions uh, is as follows it says once we were men now we've become dry sticks 
compare a green brand kindled at one end, the other oozing sap. It whistles and spits as air finds vent and then rushes out as wind. Now, So now there ran out of this fractured spigot both words and blood. A description that on its own is layered and interesting and kind of disgusting and vivid, but then you find out, if you find out who that character is, who that tree person is and is trapped there, and the reason why they have that punishment, it just deepens the meaning. But there's no way you know that much about 1300s Italian politics, probably. So, you know, get an annotated copy. That's the easiest recommendation I can give here. Layer 3, level 3. Wikipedia will be your friend on this journey, which I, I guess that's kind of a tag-along to, to level 2, but I think it's worth saying that that's not a source of information that should bring shame. I know high schoolers these days are taught to be ashamed and fear Wikipedia. It had one of the most detailed summary pages I have ever seen and looked, you know, for the most part to be accurate. I didn't, you know, analyze every line on Wikipedia, but compared to other pages that we've I've used for this journey as like a really light research background, this one was incredibly detailed, incredibly helpful, and yeah, I, I relied on it just to double check a couple things. I also have an annotated copy of um, Inferno from college that I used a couple times. So, you know, no shame in the Wikipedia game. As always, I would say avoid Sparknotes or websites that offer interpretations. I think that's where the annotated copy would do enough of a job. You can figure out and draw the connections you need to from there in terms of meaning and significance. And so, yeah, as always, use websites for summaries and guidance, but just don't use them to tell you what a symbol should mean. That's, I think, where I kind of draw the line. And it's like, eh, at that point, you're not really doing the work yourself. And so why engage at all with the literature, you know? Leave it up to your brain. Your brain's powerful. All right, we're getting a little deeper now, level four in this review. I This is where I want to make clear that some of the illusions, though, I had, or I had already mentioned will be tough to understand or maybe you won't get. On the other hand, there are loads of illusions that you probably will if you paid even a little attention in high school classes or college classes. It's not like you need a degree in classics to fully understand all the cool moments in the story, cool being like depraved, interesting, creepy, whatever. Like, I think the worst punishment maybe in the story is say for Judas, who if you have studied Christianity or are Christian or grew up that way or whatever, you probably have heard the term or the name Judas before, the betrayer of Jesus. He's sitting in Satan's mouth in this story and the the narrator's uh, friend or guide Virgil says, that one up there condemned to greater pain is Judas. See, I forgot how to pronounce his last name. Iscariot? Iscariot? Huh, I haven't pronounced that last... It's, it, everyone calls him Judas. Like, I, wow, I haven't had to pronounce his last name in maybe since Bible study or something. Judas Iscariot, my teacher said. His head inside, his feet out, wriggling hard. He's just sitting there getting chewed on for eternity by Satan, getting flayed in the back by his claws. And that is brutal stuff. Often the imagery in this book is, we'll get to that in the next layer. And my personal favorite illusion that I thought was just kind of intriguing was Cerberus, who is from Greek mythology, is the three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell. The quote on page 11 here from Cerberus is, Cerberus, weird and monstrously, monstrously cruel, barks from his triple throats in cur-like yowls over the heads of those who lie there drowned. His eyes vermilion, beard a greasy black, his belly broad, his fingers all sharp-nailed. He mauls and skins, then hacks in four these souls. That's, I mean, intimidating 
creepy, a little gross. I think, you know, if you're going to be walking around in hell checking out the sights, it has to be at least a little bit gross throughout. I think that's a key part, at least in how I would want to interpret it and experience such a setting. And yeah, I think those kinds of illusions pop up all over the place. Again, there's no way they'll all go over your head. Um, Again, assuming you just paid even a, a hint of attention in some of the high school classes you probably had. Which takes us to layer five, the horror, the horror. Uh, This is where I think I'll start to get a little more specific with the quoting. The imagery in this poem and throughout the entire Inferno, not even just the selection they gave us, is really rich and it's diverse. It's diverse in its writhing, torturous kind of misery. It's like a really impressive, like almost menagerie of pain, which I think is, you know, was part of the point. Dante did not want hell to seem like a welcoming place. Obviously, that would be more probably of like a postmodern or modernist interpretation. I'm sure there's probably some version of hell out there described that way. But it's going to be a text where there are such sincere and brutal descriptions at every turn. Every layer seems to have new tortures and new ways to pain the sinners who are sent there and condemned. So, you know, if that sounds intriguing to you, you know, then this work is probably right up your alley. And even if it's not, I think the descriptiveness is worth it. Um, I can attest to that personally, because there are at least a couple moments here that felt like my own personal hell, my own personal lifelong torture device. Um, One example on page 38 being, quote, And there I came to see a dreadful brood of writhing reptiles of such diverse kinds the memory drains the very blood from me. That is precisely how I feel when I encounter basically any reptile. There's a little gecko that lives at the bottom of my apartment stairs. And yeah, I've had my blood drained a couple times just coming across the little thing. You know, when they scatter and creep about, they don't move in a way that is regular. They don't—they just have a, you know, creepy movement. Snakes too, which I think is my ultimate fear. The next quote I pulled for just horrific imagery is like a metal album cover also involves snakes. This is a longer quote from 39. And through all this abundance, bitter and grim, in panic, naked humans ran. No holes to hide in or heliotropic charms. Behind their backs, the sinner's hands were bound by snakes. These sent both tail and neck between the buttocks, then formed the ends in knots up front. And I I can't confirm this without doing a little more research, but I'm about 90% certain there's probably a Finnish or Swedish band, you know, some kind of Scandinavia region band that has a metal album cover that is probably just that image of naked people running around tied with snakes crawling, you know, in and around them. It's, you know, it's grotesque and disturbing, and I think, you know, maybe in his time it was read um, with a bit more fear. I wouldn't say I I read this feeling fearful. I suppose that just depends on how much you put stake in the idea of there being a hell. I just think it's intense and, you know, reflects well as sort of metaphor and just literal description. It's intriguing, it's dense, and yeah, it's like kind of brutal and creepy too. So there's that for, for those of you out there who just need a little bit of that in your life. All right, on to level six. We're a little deeper now. I want to dedicate this level to the narrator, um, who is unnamed, I believe. That's what I remember about the work. Because the narrator has a guide throughout the entire story, and it's Virgil, the famous Roman poet who wrote the Aeneid, among other really legendary works. There's a ton of meaning in the fact that this is the narrator's guide throughout the underworld. 
meaning that has to do with the history of Italy and, and Rome and the empire and what it was and what it became and how it split up. I can't nearly unpack all of that. Um, but it, just know that he's kind of plays a, a grounding element in the story. He He's described as being sane as ever throughout all this madness. He's described as stalwart and courageous. You know, the narrator wants to please him. He wants him to be, quote, very pleased and satisfied with the commentary he's making and the, the view he has on hell. It's just sort of a, a grounding. It's nice to have the relationship there. Because if it was a totally detached narrator just kind of observing things and, uh, you know, just taking in these punishments, I I don't think it would have quite the same, I don't know, I was going to say charm, but quite the same grounded feel to it. It wouldn't feel quite as human. And so it's nice to have Virgil there just sort of like hand-holding and uh, taking in the, the... twisted sights and sounds also it it almost feels at times romantic though again that's an interpretation i'll leave up to somebody with a bit more scholarship and and time to think on that it definitely at least feels like a like a brotherly affection there's a lot of embracing and hugging they help each other up and down ravines and across mountains and over uh, through ledges and tunnels and yada yada so it's it kind of grounds it and makes it feel a bit more physical and a bit more human, I suppose. Because uh, many of the things is hopefully the descriptions have given away so far definitely don't feel human. They feel otherworldly in their pain, and so I think that was pretty intriguing. Another quick element too to mention with this Virgil kind of guide is he's not like an infallible force either in hell. It's not like he's the he's not like the controller. He's not like running things. Um, it, they even give him some trouble. Um, they refuse him at one area where they want to get through a gate and the the people there just don't let him them through virgil goes on to say on page 19 who dares deny me entrance to this house of grief you see i'm angry now don't be dismayed they'll fuss around in there they'll seek to keep us out but i'll win through and even just a small moment i mean you know going into the story of course because i've spoiled it and it's been spoiled over the last like 700 years since it's been written but yeah they make it all the way they see everything there is basically to see in hell um including getting down to see lucifer at the center of it um and so it's not like there's tension there, but those small moments of, of setback and just small moments of kind of plot, I guess you could say, I think it adds. It adds just enough to keep things kind of lively and um, takes away from the moments where you're just getting line after line of criticism of, you know, politicians and betrayers and just brutal descriptions. So I, I liked the uh, the companionship. We are into level seven now of our review, getting pretty deep. It's getting hot in here, uh, not, and not only because I have to turn off my fan to record this podcast, but it's getting intense. I think these last seven levels I've tried to reserve for more, um, I was going to say academic, but that's not quite right, like literary analysis points. Um, the first being the simplest, this epic poem, which it is a poem, I I guess I I haven't said that explicitly yet, probably, um, is divided into these uh, cantos, which I looked up quickly in the Penguin Literary Dictionary, and this is their definition. A canto is a subdivision of an epic or narrative poem comparable to a chapter in a novel. And then they said an outstanding example is the Divine Comedy, which is what the Inferno is a part of, so there you go. And I think even though it's it's a slight organizational trick or slight organizational choice it's not like it profoundly changes how you're going to read this 
But having the cantos break up the work, I think, is a huge deal. It, it, I think for a 2019 reader who goes in with reasonable expectations, knowing, okay, this will be pretty challenging. I'm not going to read, you know, 200 pages of this in a day and, and just kind of breeze through. I think the canto is the perfect little stopping point. You know, it's the, each one is dense with its own references and its own imagery. And so it's just enough of a pause, I think, for any, for any reader, really, that just lets you reset. And maybe it's sort of a kind of a book where it's like, I'm going to do two, two a day, just and sort of slowly chisel my way through this kind of legendary work. It also kind of gives you an excuse to stop and check the annotations if you get an annotated copy and just make sure you ground yourself and understand fully what's being referenced and what's going on. So I, I think in that sense, it really works well in terms of structure and organization. Down to level eight now. This poem has a density of verse that, and I know I've a lot of these kind of layers and levels I've dedicated to mentioning, eh, it's it's tricky to read, it's difficult, it's dense. Uh, this is where I really wanted to dig in. Um, hopefully in high school you took some kind of literature or language class, maybe an AP class or something. If you've been out of the game for a while and you're not a, you know, you're not a regular reader or you're just not accustomed to seeing poems anymore, which most people probably aren't, then this book will present a challenge. I pulled one line from page seven or one, like, half a stanza, and it has in it an oxymoron, a simile, it has some personification, it has hyperbole, and probably more things that I'm not even thinking of. The line says, quote, And so I came where light is mute, a place that moans as oceans do impelled by storms, surging, embattled in conflicting squalls. The swirling wind of hell will never rest. There, you could just unpack 20 things in those lines. I mean, I, I like the squall word in reference that... I always thought that word had such a fun sound to it. But And then there's the moans of oceans. That's, you know, kind of an all-encompassing description. It's ceaseless and remorseless in a way. I don't, yeah, it's just... It works so well on a lot of levels. And, you know, if you really want to do the, the old high school English teacher or, or college professor thing of, you know, analyzing 20 words, there you go. You could do at least 20 things with those lines and think through it a lot of different ways, which uh, to me reads as something, you know, well-constructed and interesting. If that's not uh, up your alley, then this might not be for you as well. Also, I know in the past on this podcast, Ryan and I have have both kind of dogged, I think would be the verb, um, poetry. And there are some slant rhymes and some rhyming in this work, but it's not overbearing and it's not song-like, which I think is the one thing I want to avoid at this point when I'm reading a poem. Um, This I pulled some lines here that have a slight rhyme in it, but I think it's illustrative of the style. And it says on page six, quote, Before him always stands a crowd of souls. This is the judge, by the way, one of the judges judging the entering souls. Before him always stands a crowd of souls. By turns they go, each one for sentencing. Each pleads, attends, and then is tipped below. You there arriving at this house of woe, watch as you enter and in whom you trust. Don't let yourself be fooled by this wide threshold. And maybe the lack of rhyming there, the kind of woe, you know, there's a slight woe rhyme uh, with below, but it's not overbearing and it's definitely not song-like. Perhaps that's due to the translation. I think you should probably Google, you know, which translation is the most current or up-to-date or whatever. I don't think you can really go wrong at this point. I've now read, this is the second translation I've read or encountered, and I thought both were similar enough. I mean, there's always going to be little stylistic choices and differences, Um but, and so, you know, I don't think you can go wrong with whatever translations are out there. I think, yeah, in the, in the end, the rhyming and the poetic elements, it, it kind of rustles you a bit. I think 
the thing about a rhyme is when you don't see them often and then one occurs, it's this kind of rousing sensation where you're like, oh, that was, you know, it really jumps out to you and it kind of, it kind of pokes you. And I think it's a little jolt and it's like a perfect reminder that, oh yeah, you're in a poem and there's this kind of out loud quality that you should be appreciating. But yeah, thankfully it's not overbearing and it's not, um, not the defining characteristic of, the, of this text, which, you know, is good for me. And lastly, we've arrived fully intact hopefully i'm um i'm feeling it a little bit but uh, hopefully you've been enjoying the ride uh we've arrived to the final layer layer nine and i want to dedicate this layer to just the bits of wisdom and sort of the meanings and themes ideas in the text it's not easily done but this is a work that incorporates some pretty direct moments of moralizing and advice giving but without being preachy and i, I don't mean that as a, a religious pun or anything it obviously a lot of it comes from Virgil, who is clearly meant as some sort of like grounding force in this text. The narrator, though, too, also kind of indulges sometimes in condemning these sinners and critiquing them and saying like, "Oh yeah, it's no wonder you're here. Look at the crimes you committed and what you've done." Um, I pulled an example from that on thirty-seven. It says, "Quote: No fame is is won beneath the quilt or sunk in feather cushions. Whoever fameless wastes his life away leaves of himself no greater mark on earth than smoke." and air or froth upon the wave and so that that's a nice kind of interesting dichotomy too it sets up because it's you obviously in the text find a lot of these sinners and, and tortured souls who made a large mark on civilization and tried to tried big things again politicians and heroes people from stories but then again there's a quote like that that kind of complicates that idea and again, I think that's one of the best parts about any you know work of literature that is truly going to be considered great or endure for 700 years. You shouldn't be able to look at it and just say, oh, yeah, that's the interpretation. It means X, you know, because it says X, Y, Z. I think that this is not a work that lends itself to one interpretation. Uh, and I think that quote kind of fits that a little bit, too. If you want to hold up as a you know poem or story for that many hundreds of years, I think that's a pretty critical then again, just because of the setting, being in hell, being in one religion's version of an afterlife or a torture place, it, the setting demands some kind of forthrightness. Like, you have to put your opinions and morality pretty clearly out there. I think if you want a story like this to succeed, you can't just say, I'm going to interpret this for a religion and then be really ambiguous about things. Um, the Bible certainly has its ambiguities, but then again, it has some things that are just so indisputably obvious, too. Um, and so when it happens in the story, it didn't really bother me. I just kind of, I didn't really sigh out loud at it. I just sort of empathize with the situation that the characters are in and kind of understand what they're talking about. Uh, on 34, they qu they're quoted as saying, one of the characters, you merit punishment. You and your greed bring misery to the world, trampling the good and raising up the wicked. St. John took heed of, sh of shepherds such as you. And it's a moment, like many others in this one, that leaves very little room for interpreting or misinterpretation, where it's like, okay, yeah, I get the I get the Christian notion of good there. It's I think it's fairly clear, you know, spread good, help all, and bring up the, condemn the wicked, bring up the, the needy. Um, but it just doesn't bother me being in a place like that, because as soon as, you know, they're finishing preaching to that guy or sort of condemning that sinner, there's another description or another illusion or just something else to think about. And that's ultimately what this work leaves you with a lot to think about and a lot to analyze and a lot to consider, which uh, to me has been sorely missed in the last couple of weeks, though the Kipling certainly had components that 
that gave you some multifaceted stuff to chew on. Let's uh, let's make our way out of here now. Let's escape the uh, the pits of hell with a review and a rating. I think overall, every person who is literate, so hopefully every person will read the inferno at some point this is a complete three recommendation for me i can't think of something we've encountered in this collection in a while that i so strongly think everyone should try again the way it's organized into the cantos makes it way more approachable than you'd think yeah it's going to be dense and yep there's definitely people in here that who you will not know nor should you know frankly uh but that's okay that's what an annotated copy is for the over the 700 years since this book has been available this poem People have thought deeply about it and put in the work, and you can find those annotated copies, and they're definitely worth your while. Uh, So in the end, uh, you know, maybe it's just the literature fan in me coming out strongly for this one, but I fully hope you go and try and get a copy. Rent one from the library, buy one online, buy one from your local bookstore. Just try and get your hands on the Inferno, um, because I won't draw direct political allegory uh, to our current day, but if you feel like we're in an inferno, maybe this is the book you're looking for in the winter of 2019, or just any other time, really. its uh, I don't think it'll let you down in terms of interest and intrigue, and just intensity, too. Let's throw another eye description in there. And with that, we have escaped, people. Uh, we've made it out of that episode. I really enjoyed talking about that. That's a book that uh, I felt more passionately about as I reread it than I realized I would, which is, that's always fun to rediscover something you liked. Next week, we have a collection of nonfiction from a Victorian-era London writer coming up. I think it's called Of Street Cart Pie Men, or something like that. I don't have it in front of me. And I finished it already, so I've got lots of thoughts. That should be an intriguing episode. We'll see if I can convince Ryan to come back for that one. If not, I will, again, try and come up with some kind of new review uh, gimmick or idea. I'm having fun just trying to brainstorm different ways to do solo episodes so far. Thanks again if you've uh, stuck with us through these five episodes of Just It Being Me. Again, I appreciate the patience as we're getting back to some normalcy. And yeah, hopefully we've given you a couple ideas of things to read in the meantime. Continue to recommend us to your friends, colleagues, coworkers, loved ones, etc. And we will see you soon between the classics. Classics.